The Incomparable Podcast, number 32, April 2011. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I am Jason Snell, your host. I am joined today by our usual book club, Rogues Gallery. Um, if you ignore the last book club podcast, which I wasn't on and in fact only listened to yesterday. But let's ignore that because that had Dead Morn on it and therefore it doesn't count. Uh, so our usual uh, our usual book club rogues gallery, Glenn Fleischman, joins us. Hello, Glenn. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reading the book, as always. Scott McNulty, also a literate gentleman who has read the book. Yes. Yes. You have read the book. I concur. All right. Thank you for concurring. And joining us, yet another person who is capable of reading things and speaking <laughs> about them. You wouldn't think this would be rare with our group. And yet, thank you to Lisa Schmeiser, who joins us again today. I learned how to read for this podcast. That's right. Reading will get you far. And you know why? Because reading is fundamental. Mm -hmm. Take a look. It's in a book. A reading rainbow. Mm -hmm. So our uh, subject today on the book club is actually short stories. And in particular, we're going to look at a short story collection along with some loose assorted short stories by a, I believe, Seattle-based author. Is that right, Glenn? That is my understanding. I know people who know him. Uh, a guy named Ted Chang, who who doesn't Ted Chang doesn't have a massive uh, output of writing. He he seems to be a um, slow writer, a methodical writer. But he released just a few years ago a short story collection called Stories of Your Life and Others, and it was recommended to be by Greg Noss, our good friend and member of the podcast, who decided not to show up tonight, even though he recommended the book to me. Thanks, Greg. Um, <laughs> But Ted Chiang has been has been critically acclaimed. He's won awards. He's been nominated for lots of awards in the whole in the science fiction writing community. Um, and he is a good writer. So I, I thought we would um, we would talk a little bit about these books. If you haven't, or the, the short stories. If you haven't read them, I I doubt we're going to get um, deep down into the spoilers. But if so, uh, we'll fire off the spoiler horn. But with so many short stories, it's really not about the big machinations of plot like it is with novels. It's a lot about just uh, sort of taking that, that journey and, and, and getting the little nugget of the story. So um, so anyway, Ted Chang, I think we've all read some or all of the stuff that he's written. I'm not sure how to approach this. I, I don't really want to go down a bulleted list of, of every single short story he's written, although we could maybe start by uh, talking about a particular story that you found interesting in some way. And I'm going to throw it to Glenn because he's in Seattle. He's got the home court advantage. We should talk. We can talk about themes after we talk about stories, I think, because a lot of things run through this. But That's I right. think um, story of my story of your life is uh, to me, it's one of the best pieces that that story in this collection is one of the best pieces of writing that I've read ever, yes. I have to say, because it, um, he does something that I have the same feeling when I read, uh, certain, you know, terrifically, um, uh, cerebral science fiction authors. Like I'm looking, I'm looking across my room at the massive anathem, which has its own bookshelf, for instance, Neil Stevenson's yeah. anathem. I think it's, I think it takes up a quarter of the space of my uh, living room to hold it. And, um, and when I read anathem, I felt like, Oh, I, it was painful to read initially because he was rewriting my brain as I wrote, as I read it. Mm -hmm. And I felt to a much smaller extent, uh, story of your life requires that you, as you read it, you are uh, dealing with the different tenses that the first person uh, author, who's a, a professor, I guess a professor of linguistics, I suppose is maybe the um, 
the best way to describe her. And um, she she's talking about the the future as the present and the past sort of as the past and it's confusing where she's at and she seems to be talking to an infant and as the story evolves she's moving backwards and forwards through time and you think oh is this one of these time travel stories does she get precognitive powers and what it turns out to be is so both um, like mundane and remarkable at the same time that it's I found it kind of mind blowing like I'd never read a concept in science fiction that so beautifully encompassed the notions of of free will and um, predestination and all of that stuff while also being a good story and being good sci-fi and really moving me Um, one of the things that's in it I think this is a classic Ted Chang characteristic is that your narrator is not to be trusted but it's not an unreliable narrator in the sense of like everything she says is a lie, but more like you really have to read it carefully because she's telling you things that seem to be absolute facts. And then by the end of the story, you're like, wait a minute. And I think I've read some of these stories three or four, maybe this one, probably five times and maybe more, uh, over the years. And, uh, on multiple readings, you're like, Oh, she, she refuses to acknowledge how she's changed reality, how she's changed her own future, even as she's saying it's impossible. And that's part of the malleability of of Chang's writing is that he is really fascinated with the notion of how much is under our own control, how much do outside forces, whether it's God or aliens or God aliens, you know, God kings and king gods are, are in charge of us, are robots, human beings, and their power is derived from some strange motive force, like all these things. But what is actually allowing us to make decisions? What do we think is allowing us to make decisions and how do we uh, ascend beyond that? And so this is, I think this is like the perfect gem of a story, both on a larger scale and inside all the collections too. It's funny that you mentioned the idea that this is uh, hacking your brain a little bit, like like you you said about Anathem, I believe on a on a previous podcast as well. Um, because that's he's got me. <laughs> that's actually the that's actually the point of the story as well is that um, the 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 main character's brain is hacked by her understanding of this language, which as an old comm major, I, I throw it back to the Sapir Whorf hypothesis that the way your mm-hmm. language describes the world becomes the way you view the world. Um, mm-hmm. And it's taken to this kind of wacky sci-fi extreme here where you've got an alien race that doesn't essentially doesn't believe in linear time. There's this whole concept that, you know, the universe, there is free will. And yet at the same time, every event in the time history of the universe before, you know, past and future is happening simultaneously and is sort of part of a crystal or something like that. And so their concept of past, present, and future doesn't really exist. And so as she learns their language, this is, which has got some crazy name. It's like, uh, it rewrites her perception. Yeah, it, it changes her actual perception of time. So that by the time you get to the end and she's learned heptapod B, mm-hmm. um, she can, she can no longer, uh, perceive time well she can she can perceive time in both ways because she's learned this language but it it is that it's kind of wow far out man but it's it's in some ways it's just what a good short story should do right Mm -hmm. which is change your way of thinking in some way except on this crazy you know sci-fi scale with the personal touch of her talking to her child also thrown Mm -hmm. in so there's a lot of stuff in the blender the thing I noticed when I was reading through the, the stories is I, I came to think of three stories as sort of an interrelated triptych. Um, Understand, which is about a guy who undergoes an experimental treatment and becomes 
massively intelligent. It's, um, like, it's like flowers for Algernon yeah. to the 10th power. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, only without the only without the hideous regression. But I saw Understand, Story of Your Life, and 72 Letters as complementary works. And the reason I saw them thusly is because in every single one of them, the power of language to shape reality and to shape perception is a pivotal part of the story. And what it reminded me of was the plot point in Snow Crash mm. where – well, you know, when when it turns out that there is the generative grammar at the you know, Neil Stephenson borrows very heavily from Noam Chomsky's early um, right. linguistics theories that you know there is a generative generative grammar that is used to describe reality as we know it, and if you can hack the grammar, you can hack human behavior. And I found that those ideas were very subtly interwoven, especially through Understand, where the whole point to the story is that the protagonist is taken down by somebody who's grasped the rules of the grammar faster than he has. And in Story of Your Life, the protagonist at the center of it learns a whole new grammar, thanks to Heptapod B, and that radically alters her perception of space and time. And then in 72 Letters, it was the ability to assign a specific etymology to a phenomena that is going to change the way an entire species reproduces and is going to fundamentally alter human society a couple generations down the line. And I found it fascinating that he kept... Returning to this theme of, um, you know, once you can decode the grammar, you can dec- you can decode reality, or once you alter a language, you can alter the outcome of reality. It seems very, very much reflective of his day job, which is as a technical writer who documents <laughs> code. You know, it, it 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 deals with closed systems and the idea that once you've decoded, once once you've demystified the system and set down the boundaries and what the outcomes are going to be in order to change the outcome, all you have to do is 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 understand and manipulate the parameters. I wanted to read uh, a, a very short passage to take a lead from Jason Snell, who's carefully marked stuff in previous podcasts, to read. Um, this this requires a spoiler horn, I think, because it does give a little way, a little bit more of the story of your life away. But it says um, it's uh, I don't have the uh, it's page one hundred and seven in a sum edition here, uh, uh-huh. and it's the the, uh, the first person narrator narrator is talking about Heptapod A was the spoken language, and Heptapod B is this written language that they've been working out. It's like a simultaneous writing where you write the whole concept all at once, but you seem to need to know the entire outcome to write the ideogram, the, the sort of uh, presenta- uh, presentation of the idea. So it says, before I learned how to think in Heptapod B, my memories grew like a column of cigarette ash laid down by the infinitesimal sliver of combustion that was my consciousness, marking the sequential present. After I learned Heptapod B, new memories fell into place like gigantic blocks, each one measuring years in duration. And though they didn't arrive in order or land contiguously, they soon composed a period of five decades. It is the period period during which I know Heptapod B well enough to think in it, starting during my interviews with Flapper and Raspberry, the two aliens, and ending with my death. And uh, for me, that encapsulates the story. It's this terrifying thing where she is gaining not only the perception of the future, but the perception of how she perceives the future as well. It's it's a beautiful passage. If you, and uh, it's also one of the things I've noticed is linguistics seems to be something that several sci-fi authors tend to return to over and over again. Um, for example, are you guys at all familiar with um, Suzette Elgin Hayden? No. 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 Oh, not even Scott knows. <laughs> not even Scott. You stumped the band, Lisa. She wrote a trilogy, um, although the third book, as is the case of many trilogies, the third book was many, many years after the first two and goes off in a whole wacky weird direction. But um, the premise of her first two books is that alien races have made contact with humans 
And as a result, linguists have managed to consolidate most of the political and economic power. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I imagine academics must love those books. (laughs) Well, uh, I think one of the reasons she's not widely known is because it's also set in a dystopian future where women have been reduced to legal chattel. And so what the books talk about is the way women create a subversive language of their own to foment social rebellion, and it actually fails. But um, aside from that downer outcome, what's really fascinating is how interwoven through the books um, is the contention that the more aware you become of how a language is put together, the more aware you become of how your perceptions of the world are assembled, and that by altering one or altering the other, you know, you can change the way you think, and that changes the way you communicate, or you can change the way you communicate, and that in turn will influence your perceptions and create a feedback loop that alters the outcomes of what you want to do. I think not surprising that wow. writers would get into this stuff, given mm-hmm. that the entire idea of writing something is to put words in a sequence that causes an audience to have a reaction and behave in a certain way or think in a certain way. That is what a writer does. So, yeah. you know, but, you, but um, you know, the way Chang does it is he puts it in this kind of amazing, uh, very well executed, I, I was going to say sci-fi trapping, although a lot of his stuff is, is, is weirder than that even. I mean, understand is a, a very almost cyberpunk kind of story about this guy who infiltrates the computer networks and because he's super intelligent and then he finds he's got a counterpart and they essentially have this slow motion, high speed, <laughs> simultaneously duel. Um, and Story of Your Life has wacky aliens who appear and are are like big octopus aliens. But um, he's got some other other um stories that are um you know very different tower of babylon and uh, a story that's not in his collection the merchant at the alchemist's gate um are both stories that have a middle eastern flavor and are are clearly sort of sci-fi or fantasy in one way and yet in an, they don't have that flavor at all they're they, it's an entirely different much more exotic uh, you know not your usual setting for a for a, a sci-fi story so he kind of goes all over the place yeah and I will say that the Tower of Babylon was my least favorite story, and it is the first one in the the uh, compilation. So I thought, "Oops, yeah. this is not going well." You know, I you warned me about that, and I went back because I'm like, "Well, I thought all the stories were great," and then I went back and I was like, "Oh, yeah, that one's a little, you know, tedious." It, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's a guy ascending the tower, and it goes on. It, it does go on and a on. bit, and, and on, then at and the on. end, there kind of is this. Exactly. <laughs> Although you know, it kind of reminded me of some of James Morrow's work. Are you guys familiar with James Morrow? No. Hanks only, be- only, be- only begotten <laughs> yes. daughter, where somebody raises the, uh, the, the 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 immaculately conceived daughter of of of, of God, um, telling Jehovah where Jehovah where Jehovah's body falls to earth. Um, Man, he did a James collection- Morrow is he's a, he's one of my favorite authors. He did a collection of short stories, Bible stories for adults, um, where he he also has a, a Tower of Babel story. Um, a better one. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, except James Morrow is a lot angrier than Ted Chang, so it's it's you can't really read him when you're feeling bad about yourself or humanity because you'll end up just you know oh what is the what is the meaning of it all? But he's worth reading if if you're in a, if you're in a calm emotionally level place. <laughs> Towing Jehovah is a, is a good one because they you know he God dies and they mm-hmm. find his corpse floating in the ocean, <laughs> yeah. which just amuses me. Mm-hmm. So, so Lisa, do you have a um, 
is your is your sort of pick for the story that you found the most interesting is that is that understand or is it the triptych or do you have something else the triptych I thought was fascinating from right. a thematic perspective and I thought that that perhaps tells you a lot about ideas that that the author is perpetually chewing over my favorite story out of all of them and I'm not sure this was in the collection is exhalation right you- I think that's not in the collection <laughs> yeah um, I really enjoyed exhalation a lot um the, the process of this this species the, the, an anatomist from its particular species it's like the underta- robots with the iron lungs is that who the- under yeah who undertakes to dissect his own brain and and discovers that their un- that the universe is in fact shrinking um it's wait cons- wait Jason thank you for sucking all the beauty of the story with one sentence yeah. good God so, so well I, I got to say that that was a nominee that was a Hugo nominee last year and I and I yeah. got to the list and I I got to that one I'm like oh Ch- Ted Chang and I read it and I was like Wow, this is a story about some sentient robots who are who have evolved from an iron lung machine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they use gold and they use gold to conduct their thoughts. And he figures out their relationship and then says, Okay, by the way, we're all doomed. So I'm writing this down because eventually our universe is going to wind down, but maybe somebody who's a different species will find us. And it was the combination of the investigative spirit in the story. And the tragedy of an entire species dying due to the law of physics and the hopefulness of discovery. And I thought, wow, this this pretty much encapsulates uh, what one would hope would be the best of any sentient species. So I, I really like the story. I think um, I think it has a lot in common with um, his uh, most recent work, the life cycle life cycle of software objects. In that, mm-hmm. um, and going back to him being a tech writer, it it is about that process and and. Mm-hmm. and you know, there is that something technical about some of the stuff that he he writes, especially those two stories, where it's about investigating and learning. You know, whether it's developing software or being this sentient lung machine that yeah, learns about the universe. Right. I'm it's sorry that I sucked everything out of that. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't really. I didn't really like that story. It was. I was. Oh and and I think I was actually so excited that it was by Ted Chang, and I read it, and I was. I felt kind of let down, but I thought it was very creative. I, I think that. It was a little bit mind blowing in the sense that it is about this really weird alien, you know, creature who is still striving to understand the universe around it. But would you agree that one of the Ted Chang's, I think, uh, great characteristics is that it's clear he's always exploring an incredible cr- conceit. And sometimes it's like a sketch. Like you look at an artist's work and it's like, that's the pencil. They didn't fill it in. But it's still sort of interesting. And, art- and writers don't usually have that. Their writer's notebooks get published or they talk about their ideas. And I, I feel sometimes like Ted Chang, from what I understand, he works, as we talked about, very deliberatively. So this is the body of his work. And, you know, you're, uh, he's the guy, sort of guy I'm like, I wish I had novels from this fella. And I don't think he works that way. But I think some of these stories like that, it's like, this is a, a fascinating idea sketched out briefly in a, in a well-written fashion, but it's not a story. You know, it's an idea, it's a conceit, and all of his stories have a great conceit at the center. And I think that, you know, that's a common complaint with sci-fi authors in general, right, that their ideas are better than their writing. Mm. Right, didn't uh, we say that's... that you get you end up with one good idea and you write, if you're lucky, and you put a novel <laughs> around it? We exactly. said that like in the first podcast, I think. It's true. I'm still waiting for my good idea. Uh, but I, I think Ted Chang's he, – he is such a good writer uh, and his ideas are so unique that I think that – like you said, I think it's a shame that he hasn't written a novel. Uh, I'm not sure how well that would carry century. out though. I think uh, the life cycle of software objects, which is a very long work, actually sh- makes me wonder 
um, what the, te- the, the theoretical Ted Chang novel would, um, would be like, because I think Life Cycle of Software Objects is not one of his better works. It's one of his longer works, but I, I'm not sure yeah. I, I actually prefer it to some of the shorter stuff. I agree. Stuff. I, it feels yeah. like a very thin idea spread out. It's like a Saturday Night Live sketch turned into a movie. It's a little bit like that Last Night at the Roxbury. You thought I was Chang. being hard. You oh. made the <laughs> Night at the Roxbury? Oh, and you thought me with the Iron Lung Machine was hard. Wow. I had to try to top you. There are some authors who are much better with their ideas because they're in this tiny little bubble and you know just enough about it to get you sinking into the, oh, what if? And, and, and it lets you explore the idea, but there's not so much detail where you can pay attention to, wow, this, this world is built out of plywood or, wow, this idea isn't as <laughs> profound as it's supposed to be. Well, um, wait, wait my, that's a great my, Ted Chang story is this world is built out of plywood. No, my, class, my classic example of that is Nancy Cress's Beggars in Spain, which is a really good novella. Um, you know, it's basically what happens if you create a class of people who never need to sleep and it's a oh, fantastic, yeah. and it's a fantastic short story and, yeah, I know and or, or novella, but when she stretched it out to a novel and then again, uh, made it a trilogy, um, you lost the original cool idea, which is how fundamentally altered is someone's character when they don't have that downtime, when they don't dream, when they're constantly on 24 seven, you, you lose that really cool idea. And it turned instead into this really weird mis- mishmash of, of, of bioengineering and class warfare and, and Americans are dumb and consume too much. And I would have rather that she had just stopped with the short story, you know, you know Greg bears, um, great, uh, novella blood music, got turned and he turned it into a novel and exactly the same thing happened. Mm. He added some, some sort of dubious action scenes and he starts earlier in the story and does a lot of expansion of, of stuff that, you know, the the short story or, or novella or novelette or, you know, whatever the smaller Mm -hmm. work is paired back to the things that are required to tell the story. And, and, you know, it may not necessarily be that way if you start with a novel, but if you yeah. start with a short story and expand it, you can you can sort of see that that um, it's really the stuff that you would have thrown out, right? It's yeah. the stuff that wasn't essential, and suddenly it's the padding, and it's kind of disappointing. Or you don't like the direction it goes in. Um, for example, David Marusek is one of my favorite short story authors for science fiction, and one of the most poignant short story, and he's written one of the most poignant science fiction short stories I've ever read, um, titled "We Were Out of Our Minds with Joy," and. I love that story. It has stuck with me ever since I read it back in 1995. Um, I will occasionally reread it and still get choked up over it. It is the first chapter of his 2005 novel, Counting Heads. And, you know, I ran out, paid for the hardcover, which I never do, read the book and ended up just bitterly disappointed because he Mm. took, well, he took the short story. and It was, of course, the first chapter of the book. And don't get me wrong. I think he did some very creative things in the book and I admire that he had the courage to take his characters and push them in different directions, but it, they weren't the directions and the ideas that I had sort of taken away from the short story. They were his vision. And as a result, it's, I, I sort of had a bad taste in my mouth because you know, you finish the short story and you've had this little shared experience and you've got your little bubble of perception about how you've digested the story. And the author I'm sure has their bubble of perception, but you have this nifty little Venn diagram that overlaps, whereas with a novel, that that area of overlap becomes much, much smaller relative to the size of the work. So there's that, much more room for, for disappointment on the reader's part. Well, that is interesting you said it because I, I read that book uh, mm-hmm. maybe two years ago, mm-hmm. and I really liked it, and I had no idea it was a short story, that he had written any kind of short story. Oh, yeah. He's got a collection. Um that came out in like 2007, but we were out of our minds with joy. I think it first appeared in Mirror Shades. 
Um, I, I remember reading it. It, it might have been in the year's best science fiction anthology, yeah, but I do. Yeah. I definitely remember reading that. I short can't remember story. which anthology I read it in the first. Time. So Scott, you had no idea that. No, I had, and I thought mm-hmm. the the novel was great. So uh, mm-hmm. clearly, I'm glad I didn't read the short story because then I would yeah. have been disappointed. No, I liked the novel on one level, but it, it it was terribly disappointing on another level. If that makes sense. Well, because because you know you're seeing you're aware of the things that that are not necessary for the what you mm-hmm. felt was the main thrust of the. Yeah. Of the story and life cycle of software objects. I mean, I think you can argue that um, one of the reasons that it might be a little bit disappointing. I'm not sure if everybody. I mean, Glenn and I seem to think that way. Um, is is that there's a little bit of a misdirection because I think the sci-fi trope that's on display there is this whole idea of artificial intelligences and you know do they? We've seen. I mean, there's Star Trek episodes about this, right? It's is it alive and does it have rights and all of these things. And in the end, I sort of felt like what I was actually reading, and I actually like the story better if I think of it this way, is it's about – it is literally about the abandonment of software mm-hmm. and not about people at all. It's about the fact that technology and software, you know, even things that are incredibly well-loved and popular, inevitably there is the, there is the end of the life cycle oh, yeah. where they where, – where nobody uses Microsoft Word 5.1 anymore, right? I this, mean, it, This is my problem with um, Toy Story 2. The one problem I had with that movie, this will sound like I'm talking, like I just woke up in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> Hello, Glenn. <laughs> Welcome like, oh, back. Was, no, was the, um, what's the character's name? Is it Jesse? Jesse. Is that the, uh, the, yeah, yeah, the bit where she's thrown into a box and abandoned on the side of the road was this horrible, like I watched it and I was filled with this, this horrible void filled universal dread because it was like, you know, there's already this huge conceit that the toys are only sort of alive when they're around kids or when they're not around kids, but they sort of experience their lives only through this mediation of children. And then it's like, goodbye, just fling you out the window. You're not important to me anymore. And it sounds like Toy Story 3, I haven't seen it yet, starts with a little bit of that same fear. Oh, it, it like, actually <clears> goes <throat> through throughout, honestly. <laughs> oh, geez. And uh, there's something about that, like where, where you're the kind of empathy you have with the, I mean, I think life cycle of software objects, I don't mean to compare it to Night at the Roxbury because it's not horrible. I mean, more like it has that sense of being stretched way too thin to transparency, but he has that idea of like, there's this incredible loyalty um, between the, the designers, Anna, and um, and the thing that she makes, because mm-hmm. the thing that she makes becomes real, um, as real as anything else. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, I think you're right that it actually is trying to represent that feeling of abandoning stuff that's still maybe well, useful. No, it's, use thing, it's things like you know, so, hey, here's this iPod that I I used in the delivery room when we had, uh, you know, when we had one of our kids, you know, and there's this level of sentimentality over it, or it's like, oh yeah, I used to use that computer. I used to use that program. You know, I think in in technology too, and not just sort of inanimate objects like, uh, like, uh, uh, stuffed animals, you know, you have this sort of this life cycle and, and, and by personifying it in these artificial intelligence creations, you know, that makes an interesting side again with the interesting sci-fi wrapper around something else he's trying to say. But in the end, I thought it was actually like the, the, the most, this is another one of those where I'm liking it more now that I think about it than when I was actually <laughs> reading it. it. It's 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 in some ways the most artful way to describe this sort of natural process that things things move on and although they seem important eventually we we all just abandon them and it's not that they it's not the story of everything dies because that's different this is eventually everything that we make is abandoned and and you may you, you know you may be on the end of the bell curve with it, it, like those people who have the the Apple II convention every year and the Newton <laughs> convention every year, but hypercard in, forever. Yeah, but in the end, 
you know, just like the AIs in the life cycle of software objects, in the end, even the greatest supporters of of this technology, you know, as it becomes outmoded and it's not compatible with new hardware and all of these things that computer users know happen, you know, they just, you know, they fade away. And, and, and in this case, it's poignant because they're sort of these sentient creatures who basically get put in a box and it's not like they died as much as they just ceased to move forward. And that's the end. This was the most nakedly sentimental story, I thought, and that's saying a lot given that it's a collection that also features a, a, a parent gr- grieving the death of a child. Um, Pre-grieving. The, I, yeah. I thought that there were some... I thought that I thought that there were some elements of pathos in there that were perhaps not necessary, uh, and I understand they may have been in there to amplify his point, because Chang has said, well, I wrote this book, this story, to point out, I don't think AI is going to work until people value it, value it enough to pour in a lot of time and effort and love into what they're doing. Mm. And and I think it's an admirable point, but when you make the, 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 the little AIs incredibly cute and you give them a pigeon grammar because, oh, they're, they're just learning how to speak. and Yeah, they and, talk like wacky, <clears throat> lovable cartoon characters, basically. Yeah, and, 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 they have an adorable, and they have adorable little avatars that are specially created for them. And, <laughs> and then they're, they, and then they're, and they're put they're in porn, sa- by the way, which is a great <laughs> – I think he's right they're on about what? that. They're put in porn eventually, yeah. right? And they're oh, yeah, just sentient enough to express, oh, I want to be independent, but I'm still really cute and really dependent. So, And there's just a lot of buttons being pushed there yeah. that, that I thought, wait. Not, not to mention the romantic subplot, Look, which I felt was just, you know, again. Uh, yeah, sort of, well, very yeah, not con- not um, consummated or even fulfilling at yeah. all. But, you know, it's it's the old, like, why do people like ladybugs and hate cockroaches? Because no. they're cute, yeah. Oh, they're so cute. Well, they're so cute. Cockroaches? What's wrong with you? Well, this this story also points out what I like to think of as the animal problem in science fiction, um, which is that a lot of authors tend to assume, oh, in the future, things will be extinct. In the future, animals will not be uh, something people even think about anymore. Um, I can remember the first time I read Count Zero by William Gibbs, and there was a throwaway line about horses going extinct that just threw me for a loop, because... I, I was like, can you imagine a world without horses? And yet that was supposed to be, oh, in the future, pff, horses, they're extinct. And in, you know, this Chang story, Anna is a zookeeper who is obviously rendered obsolete either because the zoos are closing down or animals are di- have died or whatever. And I, I just keep wondering why there can't be good science fiction where there are entities other than humans and artificial intelligence. Why do we have to kill off other species? <laughs> aliens, heptapods. Well, occasionally you'll get well, occasionally you'll get dolphins. For example, like oh, it turns out the aliens have been talking with the dolphins the whole time. Or, the or, uplift. Or... David Brin, there. yes, David yeah. Brin wrote a whole series of. We should oh, talk about God. that sometime because I, I love re- those. I did too in high school. Oh, oh my yeah. God, yes. In high school, now I feel really. Oh, immature. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just discovered them, and I. I love well, I love the alien love scenes in that fifteen year old girl reading about Uplift uplifted war. dolphins. Oh my god! And gorillas, it's, don't it's forget like the gorillas. Better, it's like better right. than dragons. We're all gonna re- <laughs> we're all gonna regress and talk about that in a future podcast because yeah. clearly, um, I think Mr. McNulty has not been consulted on his favorite story yet. However, I was going to ask. Yes. <gasps> oh, I'm sorry. What? Uh, <laughs> that is true. So I have two that I liked. Um, What's expected of us, which is probably the shortest short. I don't even know if it was in the. Was it in the the collection? No, it's in oh. the extended part. Oh, it's in the, uh, uh, the so the, that is a good story. It basically, you know, it's about uh, they create this. Someone creates a device that uh, all you do is push a button and it lights up a light. But the twist is that the light 
lights up right before you push the button. And that leads people down the road <laughs> where they realize that they don't have free will and uh, so beautifully society crumbles and people kill mm-hmm. each other and it's it's wonderful. They fall into and catatonia. So, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it's only like a page and a half long. So There's a, there's a, a, a story – in the uh, year's best science fiction, every year I buy the Gardner. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is last it Dezoy? Is it Dezoy or Dezois? I don't know. But um, it's one of those. It could be French. It could be Americanized. But um, the year's best science fiction anthology, which is a great read. It's worth you know. I, I highly recommend it. It's it's a, you know you get thirty short stories that oh. you can take a whole year to read them if you want and just parcel them out. And there's some really mind blowing stuff in there. But there, there's a story in there, and I can't I can't think of the name of it now. But basically. Its premise is very similar, which is the um, that uh, that there are studies that suggest, which is true, that um, when they they monitor somebody and they're going to make a decision, like to reach out and press a button, that um, they um, they're the moment where they decide to press the button and reach out and press it, they're already moving to press it, and the idea mm-hmm. is that. Um, that our consciousness is not actually the decider of what happens, but more like the record keeper of the decision. Mm-hmm. So, and then what they, what they say in the search story is that, is that we're like the, the queen in the castle and all of her servants come and report to her about what's going on. But, um, uh, you know, but the servants do all the work. So we, you know, we're not in charge. We're just the, the 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 um like the minutes of the meeting <laughs> executive and, function and and uh in the short story what happens is there's this drug that makes you forget that gets you high that kids take and if you overdose on it it basically wipes out your um your the queen in the castle and so then a new person comes in and they have all your memory all the memories of this other character um but it's not the same person um uh, but very similar in in like fifteen times the length, Scott, of the story. That same idea that that you know, is it free will? Is it not? Are you really the person who's making any of the decisions, or are you, or are you just the 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 receipt? Right. And I, my favorite part of the the story is at the end. So the story is basically it's a letter basically that's sent from the future to the past, right? Warning people about this. And at the end, you know, he's saying you don't have free will. So why am I telling you this? And the last line is something like, because I have to, because he has no free will. So he has to send this letter because it is predestined and there's, he can't do anything about it. You know what this reminds me of is that uh, it's an Isaac Asimov story. I've forgotten. It's a classic story where this guy who's a history professor studying like, he, you know, he's trying, he spent his whole career trying to dispute the fact that Carthaginians um, ate babies or something when they went to war or something like that. And he finds there's some kind of institute that's, that uses um, like time viewing and they can look at events in the far past. And, uh, but they keep claiming they don't have time for him, that his pursuits too, too uh, trivial. And so he, meets a physicist at a party, this young guy, and the young guy's like, well, you know, if someone can do it, this is um, this is always the argument, this is the uh, 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 argument that if you know someone can do something, even if you don't know how, then you go and figure out how to do it because someone else has, uh, and, um, and which has been repeated through the history of software and hardware development, sometimes where someone thinks someone else has done it and they haven't, so they make the breakthrough. So in this story, this physicist is like, well, it shouldn't be that hard because they've already done it. So they figure out, he figures out a way, he and the scientist, uh, the researcher, managed to create a machine that lets them view, but the trick is it doesn't view the distant past. It views back 
like one second anywhere in the world. So they get burst in at the last minute by like the time police, you know, the time police, but the time viewer police were like, oh my God, you know what you've done? You've spread this knowledge. Now we all live in a glass bubble. Always, no one's actions will ever be unnoticed again because everyone can have one of these things. And the you know the twist was they only talked about things happening in the far past that people wouldn't think about. Turning the time viewer back one second, you've destroyed us all. Oh no! <laughs> so, what's your other um, picks? My now? other favorite uh, was "Hell is the Absence of God." Really? Oh, I, I couldn't in- even get through that one. <laughs> I, I like. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I like things where <laughs> religion goes horribly wrong. That's why I, I couldn't the... get through it, as I'm another former Catholic. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> it, that's, the, that's the one where a guy's wife is, like, killed in a... By as a an, heavenly a, visitation. Yeah, like yes. an angel appears, an and, act of and God. there's collateral damage, and yeah. she gets killed. Yeah, mm-hmm. so apparently in, the, in the, the setting of the story, angels appear on a semi-regular basis, and uh, they, you know, bring tidings from God, and they also happen to cause earthquakes and all kinds mm-hmm. of things, and people die. And, at and the because moment, they're acts of God, they're not insurable. Exactly. They're not, they're not insurable, <laughs> which is, I think, a very funny throwaway part of the whole story. Yeah. Uh, and, at the, and, and so people die, and then I guess during when, you, when an angel is around and someone dies, you can see where their soul goes. So they know if someone has gone to heaven or hell. Um, and it's a very depressing story if you get to all the way to the end. But yes. um, I, I enjoyed it mostly because <laughs> of that, I guess. Because you have a black heart. Because yes. I have a black heart. And, then, you know, and there's a character who was born uh, – so there's another part of the story where people go to where they think an angel is going to appear because when an angel appears, the light of God precedes it. And when the light of God hits people, it can cure them of disease or it can unfortunately change their DNA uh, so that bad things happen. Yeah. And there's a character in the story who was born without legs. Uh, and so she refuses to go after an angel because she wants to. She wants people to accept their limitations and, and be happy with who they are instead of living their life trying to come across a random event that will make their life better. Uh, and then through a series of events, she happens to be in an area where an angel appears and she gets her legs back. And everyone's like, oh, now you're, you know, you're, it kind of ruins her whole character. Uh, and then later <laughs> on, she sees an angel again and uh, her, she becomes blind. But not only blind, she becomes a creature who never had sight. So right. it's not that she lost her eyes, but she never was, she never had sight. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really weird story. I have it to is say. a weird story. But, I like uh, weird stories. Good for you. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, this reminds me of some of the shortest stories that he's written in this collection. We were talking earlier about other kinds of short story collections and things like that. Is, uh, again, I think an Asimov reference. I think I read too much Asimov as a child, and my I was tainted. Uh, that tainted, explains I tell you. everything. It is. It's the <laughs> future. It's all about <laughs> psychohistory. Oh, um, psychohistory. Psychohistory. Zeroth law. Susan Calvin for president. Mm. <laughs> well, but the thing I was thinking about was his, uh, he had a short, short collections that he came out with, which were super short stories, like a page and sometimes less. And I, I love, there's sort of a regressive tendency is that, you know, there's sort of this, uh, the reason that short stories evolved was that there were magazines to produce short stories that there weren't, there weren't the one amazing and all these great, um, uh, science fiction magazines were thriving in the thirties through the, I don't know, the sixties or seventies that they, um, 
they were a place for people to write of a certain length because that's how much they could afford to pay and people could you know, write at that length without writing novel length and you know the being able to sell massive numbers of science fiction novels. So there's this great tradition of short stories in um, in science fiction, but I love the fact that, like, people would also write these crazily short things that are, like, you know, and then the regressive part is, like, between Twitter and, I think, was it Wired Magazine had a five-word fiction contest, yes. that which was great, and what, what, what was one of them was uh, about the future. I have to go look it up. It was something about, like, Time is, you know, in five words, told the whole story that time wraps around, and it was uh, like the oh. best. The best one is, um, is uh, for for sale, baby shoes unused. That's a takeoff <laughs> on the Hemingway one, which is six right. words, which is for sale, baby shoes never worn. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So that's all you need, right? Six words. Six words or five, and or hundred forty. Hemingway characters. was a man of few words too. Yeah, but I like that thing that you can have. You can Many tell periods. an entire because we we infer him. like short stories require <laughs> short stories require a lot of inference. Like a novel, you can stretch out and right. they can you can learn the landscape and the language and have your brain rewired. But a short story, you have to have sort of one central. Concept. You have to have a conceit or some conceits. You have to tell it, and we fill in the rest. You yeah, know, you, and that's I think what Lisa was talking about. Like yes. when you take the short story to novel length, all the stuff we filled in becomes explicit. And, you know, it becomes overt and becomes less interesting. So I love these super shorts where it's like in like two hundred words, they've told this entire universe. See, when I was in high school and college, all I wrote were short stories. And um, when I first tried to write a novel, it was fascinating because I, I got to see it from the other direction. When the short story, you do want it to be concentrated. Here's my idea. I need to get from point A to point B. I'm going to do all the pieces that will get me from point A to point B, and I'm done. Whereas in a novel, it's like, well, okay, I sort of know where I'm going. There are a whole lot of characters. I'm going to detail all the all the steps. And I was surprised at how easily I went. The longest story I had ever written was about ten thousand words or nine thousand words. And you know, and in thirty days, I wrote fifty thousand. And the the novel ended up being one hundred and fifty thousand words. So, um, you know, but I think that's the difference is if you go into it knowing you're writing that length, your approach is very different. And that's maybe where the expansions fall apart is that, you know, you're taking a short story premise and just kind of inflating it instead of saying, no, no, this isn't that. This is a whole different kind of thing. Uh, plus one. Plus one. 40 quatloos on the newcomer. Um But he has the ideas. Form and he really, I mean, he is. You know, he's he's clearly when you talk to other science fiction writers and readers, it's like Chang is the science fiction writer's writer. Like he's the guy they all are like, oh, oh, Ted Chang, because he writes so beautifully. Because he has every story he writes is a different story, even if there's some of the concept we talk in common. He doesn't seem to reuse central conceits, even if they're. I mean, the themes are big, but the conceits are different. So they're always like you read about people, but it's like, oh, that guy, like that guy. I found an interview with him where he said um, he was asked if he has a novel in him and he said I don't know if I get an idea for one sure but I, I don't ever expect to make a living being a writer so I'm happy to just sort of crank out a short story every now and then which is interesting <laughs> he doesn't have any aspirations even though he's this you know really praised writer he's like yeah you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that and it may just be that he knows that the volume that is required is not something he can do right. I don't know well some of, some of us are Stephen King and some of us are Ted Chang well, I sometimes I mean, wonder if the the 
if there is an inherent tension between telling a good story and exploring the limits of an idea within a storytelling context. Hmm. Because, for example, I will argue with Harold Bloom even that Stephen King is a fantastic storyteller, both as a short story, um, both in, in short story and in, in, in novelistic form. And I think one of the reasons he is is because he doesn't necessarily, necessarily tackle big ideas. He just mm. strings together event, 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 event. So it, in such a way where you want to find out what happens next. Whereas when you are exploring an idea, it's a different – well, and here we go back to the beginning of the podcast. It's a different framework of perception because what you're trying to do is you're begging up against the sides of the idea. And what, what about this? Oh, there, that happens. But what about that? Oh, that's how that carries out. And you're taking the idea to its logical conclusion but that's not necessarily the same thing as crafting a linear narrative that is riveting that makes people want to find out what the next step is. Harold Bloom, by the way, also failed to show up for the podcast tonight. So, Well, he forgot his microphone. He doesn't understand. <laughs> I think he also failed Jim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scott, were you going to say something? Uh, uh, yes, I was. Speaking, you know, thinking about novels as commerce, I can imagine, you know, there's a lot of work to make uh, to write a novel. Not that I've ever written one, but I can I imagine it is. Uh, yeah, it's easy. Uh, I knew <laughs> we could do it. Um, a Tenchag, as we've, uh, you know, established, takes a long time to write. Uh, so yes. he would have to put a lot of effort into it. And frankly, I, I'm sure it would be a lovely novel, but I don't think it would sell all that well. Just because it's not, I don't you think... You do get the sense he's almost like a musician's musician, right? <laughs> exactly. I don't think he, this is not going to be a Harry Potter, right? So... Well, there you go. Here we go. Again, once again, you have the exploration of ideas versus the ability to craft a compelling narrative. Right. It's true. Um, That's right. Right. Okay. Where's this actually, this, this actually reminds me a bit of the, um, I assume all of you have already seen the Funny or Die Harry Met Sally sequel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, there actually reminds me, like the Ted Chiang thing reminds me a little bit of that. It's like, you know, he could take these incredibly, like, beautiful, sad, subtle ideas and turn them into a novel. And then if he just had that one idea, like vampires, mm -hmm. he could make a million. <laughs> like, oh, I guess that won't work, will it? So I want to mention my two Ted Chiang stories because yes. – Have we not asked you yet? I, I, I'm just sitting right uh, over here. Jason. I'm so oh, sorry. What, what, what are your favorite stories? What are your favorite stories? Oh, it doesn't matter now. You've destroyed everything. You've ruined me. Never mind. Us, it's not important. I'm going to go in my room. You probably picked bad ones anyway. Uh, exactly. Actually, <laughs> what's funny is I am going to mention um, uh, two stories that, that none of you mentioned. Um, I was waiting for the inevitable uh, somebody to mention these stories, and nobody did. One of them I mentioned earlier, which is The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate, which I really mm. like. It's it's about a, a guy who goes into a shop in Baghdad, and a man is there who has this arch. And um, the arch will take you 20 years into the future. Um, and And theoretically, it will take you 20 years into the past, but only after it's been operational for 20 years logically um but he came his son runs a shop in cairo that also has an arch and that's been in operation for a while so you can go forward or backward in time and the, the main character ends up well first there are amusing scenes where he sticks his arm through it and waves it mm -hmm. and doesn't come out the other side and all of that and they look through and they see who's on the other side and it's like the guy but he's 20 years older um but he ends up um his wife died 20 years before in a, in a horrible accident. And so he goes to Cairo and goes back through to 20 years in the past and then comes back to Baghdad. And, you know, it is on one level, it is just sort of how many different explorations can we have of the idea of, um, 
you know, you can go forward or backward in time 20 years. Uh, but the, the way that it's done in this almost Arabian Nights sort of style, and there are these, these legendary tales that the man who runs the shop tells about different characters and the, you know, sort of horrible, tragic things that happened to them when they went through into the past or the future. Um, just, you know, and I really, I really like it. It's actually not like a lot of his other stories in that it is this um, kind of fantastical, you know, kind of amusing also so, somewhat tragic but also mm-hmm. parts of it are kind of funny and uh, anyway i like it a lot i think I, I, that stuck with me I, I i in fact i had to look back and realize that that was a ted chang story because i i hadn't realized that but um so i love that story i don't know if you guys read that but i love that story i i read that. i just read it today for the first time and i i thought it was it was a uh, beautifully self-contained it's his take on arabian nights and yeah i really i really enjoyed that part of it with a time portal my yeah. only problem is why with the main character after he talks to the the shopkeeper and he, the shopkeeper tells him these stories where it didn't work out the way anyone thought it would and yet he still goes through and you know it's not going to work out the way he thinks it's going to but then it's I guess the, you, the light went on and he had to push the button. Exactly, I was going to say. Yeah. But then this is this theme that Ted Chang explores, and that you don't really have free will, and everything's predestined. Mm-hmm. So no matter what you do, it doesn't matter because it's going to happen anyway. Hope is the engine that pushes you forward, but it has no impact on what happens. No, and then everything ends tragically. Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> this is a, his worldview, the Ted Chang worldview. So the other story that I really like is liking what you see, a documentary. <gasps> yes. Oh, that was a oh, good yeah. one. Yeah. Which is which is about the concept that there there is this procedure that can be done where they put this little helmet on you and it basically <clears throat> it flips a switch in your brain and you can no longer um, you can no longer detect whether somebody is attractive or unattractive. It's shallow hell. Mm-hmm. I suppose if we want to get the <laughs> Farrelly brothers involved, along with the Night at the Roxbury. Um, I'm, sure, but I'm but, trying to raise the tone I, of this conversation. I, I really, I, I, <laughs> thank you, Glenn. Now. You used to give us crazy words that are only in the dictionary, and now you bring up movies like I've like, suffered brain damage. Apparently. Obviously, they put on the little helmet. This is like this is like the the worst case scenario when you read a, a Chang story. Is instead of it altering your brain for the better with expanded consciousness <laughs> and nonlinear times, it. <laughs> it turns you into an aficionado of SNL movies. So, uh, so <laughs> like what, in liking what you see, and it's set on a college campus, and there's this sort of politics about about this that they, there's this uh, some of the students went to schools i think they're private schools mm-hmm. where where this um procedure was mandatory and the idea is imagine going to a high school and having nobody be able to tell the pretty people from the uh, average looking people from the ugly people that they're just all people and you have to judge them on their personality which is interesting uh, you know in and of itself but then it's taken to this other level which is that at this college campus they are talking about making it mandatory or not and the some of the kids who are coming from these private schools are debating whether they should have it you know turned off or not and there's the whole issue of um this asymmetry right where where like this apparently one of the main characters in it she's beautiful her boyfriend was uh, in high school was unattractive but she loved him and didn't realize he was unattractive Mm -hmm. and and she but she doesn't she's now sort of thrown in with the sharks because there are people there who are talking to her not because of her personality but because she's beautiful and she doesn't even realize she's beautiful And, and i just i thought that was a really fascinating exploration of that again that core idea which is what if there was this technology available to make what we would think would be like a perfect thing, which is to eliminate judging people by their looks and then take it to the extreme of, well, it it wouldn't really be that 
um, simple and it would actually be kind of a mess. And there are lots of ramifications, which is something science fiction does really well. And I, I really enjoyed that about it. It, it. What was interesting is it's told in this documentary fashion. And I was actually thinking that might make, uh, that might've actually made a good novel in mm-hmm. the sense that you could have really expanded the world. Um, I suppose it wouldn't have been, had the impact because it would have probably been more like, I try to picture it and I sort of imagine it being like a Robert J. Sawyer kind of novel where it's <laughs> kind of, you know, overly expanded and more young adult. And I'm not sure whether, you know, it would have worked, but I could see it because you could talk about the, you know, the kids in high school and their relationship and then talk about them coming to college. And, and it's not told in that way. It's told in this kind of quick cut soundbite um, documentary style of, of these little bits of clips laid against well, each other. The neat part of it too, is that um, or one of the neat parts is that he's got, it's one of his more, more interesting narrative uh, device stories that he uses, <clears throat> but you have not just the issue of, um, of, uh, that technology to remove people's ability to, you know, see what they see, how people really look or, or I guess perceive beauty, right? That's the whole thing is it's, yeah. it's perceiving beauty. Um, and he comes up with a great word. What is the word he uses? Cali, Cali is what they call it for right, short. Right, but it's like caliagnosia, which I think is oh, an actual, right. I think it's an actual thing that, that there, there can be, you can have a stroke or, or, or something like that where, where it just turns off this thing in your brain and then you can't tell. It's like the Oliver Sacks kind of thing. <laughs> There's an actual story just like this. There, people have, um, people have, um, a prosopagnosia, which is the inability to, uh, Recognize faces, right? So you can see features, but you can't. Right, actually that's the tell Oliver Sacks, apart. the man who mistook his wife for a hat. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's part like of that part of that thing. Genre. It's very interesting. Once once you know about prosopagnosia, you discover that some he thinks that five to ten percent of the population in the U.S. has some form of it. And once you read about prosopagnosia, it's like reading a Ted Chiang story. Suddenly, you realize <laughs> the people you know who have it by how they behave towards you before you talk to them and after you start a conversation. However, that said, <laughs> that said, one of the things that's uh, that's fascinating the story is that the um, the bit underlying it. So they're talking about this one thing, this Cali, and you can have it turned on and off so that you can perceive whether other people are beautiful or not, um, or what they look like, I guess, to perceive some perception of their, their attractiveness. Uh, then at some point in the story, you find out that this uh, this consortium that's trying to advertise, trying to lobby against the college <laughs> mandating in Cali, has developed this new, even more horrible technology that allows them to directly influence people through, like, microtones. Mm-hmm. So they run, they run right. an ad at the college that leads to everyone voting against turning Cali on mm-hmm. as a mandatory thing. And then it's discovered that they, the advertising firm has used this horrible new thing that now there needs to be a total ban against because it would allow, you know, every dictator in the world to absolutely rule all the people in it. Yeah. Because it, it bypasses your rational brain and goes straight to the stuff that you're hardwired to recognize as attractive or influential. Yeah. Oh, Oh, so like the root law, the, the, the root language that we speak in our brains. Yeah. How strange. Yeah. How strange. Uh, that that story. Yeah. Oh, the, it, the thing I was going to say, by the way, is so there is a real there is a story of one of Oliver Sacks's uh, uh, nonfiction bits about a woman who has prosopagnosia, and she she's a beautiful woman, has no idea she um, is now a model, I believe, and she falls in love. The guy she was in love with when the story is written is a clown because his features are so um, he uses his features so malleably <clears throat> and broadly, and he's apparently a really goofy looking guy. And who cares? I'm like that is awesome, but why is that awesome? You start to examine the reasons for it, and it all becomes extremely convoluted. Perhaps it's because I look like a clown. I'm wearing a red button nose right now as we speak. Crossing your floppy shoes one over the other. That's right. No, I mean, we we all say, you know, it's all unfair. You should judge what's on the inside, man. And uh, and that story, it's like, well, great, but 
it kind of doesn't, you know, it, it's not so simple. <laughs> and if you do that, then there is the flip side, which is they, that that woman gives a speech and everybody's like, hey, she's right. We should do what she says. And it turns out that they're, they're all being influenced the other way. So b- before we wrap up, I wanted to give everybody a chance if they if there's something out there that they um, that's a short story not by Ted Chang that they want to uh, to mention a favorite or a favorite author who does short stories or potpourri really um, now's now's the chance anybody have anything I'm going to recommend David Mariusek um, it, uh, because everybody should read We Were Out of Our Minds with Joy. And he does have a short story collection. Um, I would also recommend reading James Morrow's Bible Stories for Adults. But again, read it when you're not in a bad mood. And um, finally... Is that because what... it's going to put you in a bad mood? Or because, oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, so, they're, they're, so read they're... it when you're headed toward a bad mood. No, they're, they're fantastic stories. I mean, he has a beautiful story about a couple that inadvertently gives birth to a planet. And it is one of it is one of the sweetest stories I have ever read about what makes a family and what people do for their children, and and what it means to have to let a child go. And um, you know, it's I, I liked it before I had children, and now that I have a daughter and I reread the story, it was a big lump in the throat moment. So, but uh, again, there are some remarkably bitter stories in there. So you kind of have to watch what you're doing. Um, and I'm going to also put in a plug for an old school story collection that I, I like to reread whenever I'm, I'm, I'm feeling perversely in the mood for a pickup, which is uh, William Gibson's collection, Burning Chrome. Mm. There's some good stuff in there. There are, there are a lot of good stories in there. I especially like the one about um, – <laughs> and, and, and again, this, it, it sounds depressing, but it's not really. I especially like the one about the people who have to bring back, who have to bring back the astronauts who were picked up and abducted by aliens. Um, you know, <laughs> Olga and her Olga Olga and her seashell, but yeah, I would if you, if you're looking for sci-fi oh. short story collections, start with those. All right, mm-hmm. that's a fascinating story. I'd forgot I'd read that recently. I forget that that's Gibson. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's they're they're very much a product of the '80s. When you take a look at oh, it's Soviet technology and and the perception of of how things are going to shake out, and of course the Japanese are going to run the world, but at the same time. A lot of the ideas that he follows from point A to point B, I, I find very timeless and interesting to look at. So, uh, Glenn, what about you? Uh, I was going to recommend something I think more broadly, which is the James Tiptree Awards. Um, they, uh, it's a, there's a website, tiptree.org, and um, as I've I've probably spoken about incessantly, it's one of my favorite all favorite authors, and eventually I will organize enough of us with some agenda to read t- Tiptree and then talk about her work, his her mm-hmm. work, um, and the uh, the awards are given to stories and novels that uh, represent something of her allure, which is not just like gender bending, but things that bring up and um, twist, subvert, uh, explore issues of, of the nature of gender. Uh, and so they're not all, and they're, what's great is the ones they've picked, they had, uh, I think three anthologies and then they also give awards. They, they used to have winners each year and then they produced, uh, it looks like three anthologies and some other stuff that comes out. Um, and the stories are just, uh, sometimes excerpts from novels, sometimes stories and they're, um, marvelous stuff that, uh, it's, it's not pedagogical. It's not like, uh, in the world where everyone has three genders and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's all really subtle, interesting things. There's one that I remember in particular, I've been trying to figure out the name of it. It's one of these funny things. I've, uh, it's, um, I believe this is by, uh, 
a woman named Nestfold. And it's a story called Looking Through Lace. And uh, when you read this story, you think that it's, it's again, about linguistics. It's about linguists going to other planets. And, uh, yeah, Ruth Nestfold is the name. And it's... Um, uh, what's great about the story is this woman lands on this planet. There's this old cranky uh, linguist who's been there for a long time and sort of mastered it, but like the research university back home doesn't like all his work. So she goes out there and you find, she finds out he's entirely, entirely subverted the research, not just by being a man, but by um, entirely putting it through the filter of his own gender bias. And uh, it's a beautiful story. And you're reading along, you're suddenly like, oh, Oh, the whole thing just flipped over in my head, and now it all becomes clear, and like the language becomes clear, the culture, this guy's bigotry, and there's a great little kicker at the end, almost literally, I'll say, kicker. I won't use the spoiler horn for it. So I recommend those collections, uh, all all available in libraries from the last few years. You know, the, the, in the Miles Vorkosigan books, there is a third ginger, which is actually handled very interestingly. The uh, the kind of in, interim gender um, character. So it's out there. And uh, what? Ursula Le Guin, Left Hand of Darkness is all about strange kind of gender mixings and mergings. Um, Scott, do you have uh, some short story thoughts for us? I uh, don't really read short stories all that much. I am more of – I like to read novels. Um, But uh, (laughs) I do. A novel man, eh? I have an attention span. <laughs> it's true. I like your attention span is far too long. I like the the author to lay it all out for me, so I don't have to think. That's the thing, right? Because you, you, I want it all spelled out for me. I am a simple man at with, length with time on my hands. Yes, um, but I will mention a, a short story that I mentioned in a previous podcast that uh, did, in fact, uh, have a, an effect on me. Uh, and then it was turned into a novel, which wasn't very good. Uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, Nightfall. Mm. Uh, I went through an Asimov phase where I read – I won't say I read everything he wrote because he wrote something like 40,000 books. But yes. I read <laughs> I read would sometimes write, write with one hand a manuscript while typing a manuscript with the other hand. <laughs> exactly. here's, the thing you can, here's the thing you can say about being a dedicated Asimov reader is I've read as much as any man is capable of reading Asimov. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so I read all his foundation stuff and, and, and the, whatever the robot detective stories, um, and Nightfall, I read both the short story, which was fantastic. And then the, the novel that he did with, uh, Robert Robert Silverberg, Silverberg, which was less fantastic. Um, but the basic idea is it's set on a planet that does, is, uh, has three suns. So it's never really night except for one time every thousand years or something like that. And so the the as you might tell by the title, uh, it is set the night the like the right before this night falls and and society just freaks out. Um, so check it out. The stars, my God, the stars! Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, here's my. Uh, I have a bunch, so I'm going to go really quick. One is a a short story that I loved so much when I read it in Analog Magazine like 20 years ago that I still have that issue of Analog Magazine um, called Hindsight by um, Eric Iverson. But I I believe that's actually like Harry Turtledove or or something. It's a a pseudonym. But it's a great short story uh, in that the the premise is that um, time travel has been invented – and um, people have come back in time 
to the fifties to the highlight of uh, of science fiction short story writing, and oh. the, and the time travelers are all science fiction writers. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so there, there's a woman who is writing. Actually, you'll like this, um, Glenn. She's writing as a man because she can't write as a woman. Um, and she's writing these short stories, and nobody has heard of her. And one science fiction writer of the time, um, they, and, and actually two of them, they track her down. And the thing that I love about it is actually that there's something really pure of of a scene of somebody from at the time, the present day, trying to explain bits of of history and culture from our present day to somebody in the past i love that it's that same idea of like how would i explain a freeway to george washington right mm-hmm. how would i explain an airplane to abraham lincoln they don't have to be presidents but i think about the, the presidents i don't know why there's a great tom the dancing bug cartoon in which the a very lazy character goes back in time not his recent uh, spate of those and try and says thomas jefferson i'm from the future he says prove it he says behold this bottle of carbonated <laughs> liquid mm-hmm. that is sealed and retains its carbonation like i believe Leave you. Yes. So, so in hindsight, the, the the two the two real killer moments are um, he she pops a, a VHS tape. This is how long ago this was written. Uh, so they had time travel, but VHS um, a VHS tape of Star Wars in, and um, they don't know what it is. But as you just, the story describes what she's doing, you realize it's a it's a tape. Uh, player and she presses play and Star Wars comes on and their first thought is oh my god it's in color and, 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 and the second and the second thought is is that Alec Guinness which I just oh I, I really love and then and then when they're talking and she reveals because they're all kind of offended that she's she's not actually coming up with clever ideas she's stealing ideas from her past that's their future and um and she says, "Well, that's not entirely true. Some of them are mine." Yeah, and they're like, "Yeah, you know that that um, Ted offensive story and the Watergate story. We knew those couldn't be true. Well, <laughs> actually, um, yeah. anyway. So I love that story. It's just this little short story, but I love it. Just pushes all the right buttons for me about like time travel and showing historical figures things from our time and how cool that would be. Um, I want to mention, uh, which I already did, the Gardner." Does Dozois, Dozois, whatever it is, mm-hmm. year's best science fiction anthology is highly recommended. Comes out every July. Um, lots mm-hmm. of great stuff in there. That's where I've read a lot of the the short story writers we talked about here. Um, mm-hmm. In that anthology, um, it's really well done. He 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 prefaces it with this kind of ridiculous and boring uh, summation of the year, where he like lists everything that was ever released in any medium in sci-fi, which is just skip it. But I, I really love the stories. And then last, because I cannot believe this person's name, we have talked for an hour about sci-fi short stories, and they haven't mentioned this person's name. Harlan Ellison, for God's uh, sake. Who? Who? Harlan. <laughs> Harlan. Is he on YouTube, Ellison. right? I've seen him yeah. on YouTube. He's this incredibly nice, amiable so, Yes. Oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> so, I, so my, my, one of my junior high um, uh, English teachers, who was a sci-fi, not in a Renaissance Fair person, she told us this story about – in the, this was in the 80s. I was in junior high or late 70s, early 80s. In a, she, uh, early 80s. Anyway, she said in the 70s, like, Harlan Nelson was invited to Eugene, Oregon, where I grew up, and he was staying with his family, and he was so – profoundly foul that the parents couldn't have him at their dinner table so she had him over to dinner because he couldn't sit at a table with children as they say life is nasty brutish and short and so is harlan ellison (laughs) but that all said that guy that guy can write and that guy can write short stories and some of the most amazing and affecting stories not only the famous uh older stuff like repent harlequin said the tiktok man 
or just to drift off the Isles of Langerhans. Yeah, I, you know, the Deathbird stories. Um, but uh, I really love the, um, the Shatterday collection, including Shatterday and Paladin of the Lost Hour, which were made into new Twilight Zone episodes that were actually pretty good. Um, but um, his book, I think it's Angry Candy, oh, which yes, is one I of his one of it, one of his more uh, sort of latter day collections. Um, some some amazing stuff, including a story called The Function of Dream Sleep that will just rip your heart out. Um, and another story that um, when both of my kids passed through the age of five, my wife and I spent an entire year talking about, which is a story called Jeff D is Five. Oh, God. Which is about oh, the God, kid that never my... ages. Oh. And it's Jeff D is so... Five. He's always five. Yeah. It, seriously, you know, if you haven't read the short stories of Harlan Olsen, for Pete's sake, just, you know, find find one. Find one of the collections yeah. and mm-hmm. and buy it. And I'm telling you, and- you won't be disappointed because not only is he an amazing stylist, but some of the ideas in some of those short stories are so crazy. Um, and it's all kind of magic realism. It's, it, you, you know, mm-hmm. but it's it's amazing stuff. So he is he is now- the best short story writer I have ever read. Now, you know also that this is not a little-known fact. This is a well-known fact, but I will state it in case our, our listener is unaware, is that Harlan Ellison does not revise. So all of his stories were written ostensibly in a single draft and never revised. Yeah. I'm not sure I so he claims. believe that. No, he, but claim what, he claims a lot he of things. He can claim whatever he wants. But, but, but he, is, he is famous He's for Arnold actually have written, for having written – he used to do this thing where he would write short stories in windows of bookstores. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they, he would write them and then that would be it. And I do believe that, but those aren't his mm-hmm. best stories, which is why I don't believe that he doesn't yeah. revise them. But and, and he's he's getting up there and and he's he wrote something last year that basically said I'm going to die soon and I'm not yeah. quite sure whether that's <laughs> true or whether he's just, you know, got a complex about it. But um, you know, he uh he's got enough stuff in print now. I think all of his stuff is back in print, in fact, now. Mm-hmm. I bought it all when it was all in used bookstores and of course now it's all back in print, but mm-hmm. a lot of great collections Angry Candy, uh, Shatterday, mm-hmm. Deathbird Stories, lots of good stuff out there. And if you want to see more of Harlan Ellison, the man, you can check out Harlan Ellison Dreams with Sharp Teeth, which is a documentary oh my God. about him. Oh, Available on Netflix. He's a character. He is a character. There's also a, there's also a website run by other people, yeah. I think, that is was designed, not just designed in 1996, but I think designed in a previous epoch, like before the web existed, yes. they designed it, thinking the web might work this yes. way. Yes, it's bizarre. Ellison Webderland, you mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Yes. She sold his desk, I think. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's uh it's he's a he's a an interesting guy. I actually I actually bought the um the City on the Edge of Forever, the Star Trek episode that he wrote. I bought the book that's the the his original screenplay, which is which you can see why they changed it because it's like there's <laughs> drug dealers on the Enterprise, and he's like, what, huh? But um, but he he's got a whole story about getting screwed by the man. In, in having his story um, changed. And the, the funny thing about it is that in the process of, of writing this special edition with all these these comments, he discovered that Dorothy Fontana, who was one of the script editors for Star Trek, and a, a good friend of Harlan's for all this time, she's the one who rewrote his episode. And, and he, he's almost almost mortified, not possible to actually be mortified if you're Harlan Ellison, but almost mortified sure. that the person that he's been saying, I don't know who what hack destroyed my episode, is this person who was his friend for the mm-hmm. you know for the past 20 years and she basically says well of course i didn't tell you it was me <laughs> you know but uh so anyway it is possible um by invoking his name it is possible he will listen he will appear to part of this podcast and call us up angrily which would be and awesome sue us. no 
again. Well, I could that's why I wanted to actually mention another a, a different editor whose whose collections of short stories are worth reading, <laughs> who I had forgotten about until you guys started talking a few minutes ago. Okay, <laughs> this off at the pass, Mike Resnick. <clears throat> All right, Mike, Re- Mike Resnick. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, pulled together a bunch of different collections called Alternate Outlaws, Alternate um, Heroes, oh, right. Alternate Tyrants. Um, my favorite of that collection is actually Alternate Kennedys. And as you can imagine, all of these collections are centered around historical sci-fi where basically someone says, what if X happens instead of Y and then takes it to its logical conclusion, such as what if Mother Teresa became a um, gun-wielding bank, bank robber? Um <laughs> Awesome. The Alternate Kennedys is my favorite collection just because, you know, it, 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 most of the stories take place in a fairly recent American epic. So if you're moderately familiar with American history, you, you can enjoy the riffing, such as when the Kennedys become a uh, Beatles-esque band. Huh. Um, yeah. And, and you figure out which one, is, which one is the John and which one is the George and so on and so forth. But um, Resnick's also funny as heck. And he does write his own um, stories. He alternates between really funny things and his fictitious uh, Kiran Yaga series, which is based very heavily on the Kikiyu culture of Africa. But as an editor, he's, he's quite gifted because he has a very, very deft hand between heavy, big idea type writers and writers who are really just going to walk a long way for a punchline. And um, if you like any alternate history at all, he's a good bet. If you want to read science fiction that, that uh, again, vacillates between small ideas and big ideas, you know, he's a good bet. If you want to read alternate history about Teddy Roosevelt, he writes a lot of that too, <laughs> you know. I, right. I, I, and I think Mike Resnick doesn't get mentioned enough, and, and he's good at what he does. So, so I have to throw out one more, one more, Damon Knight, because in opposition to Harlan Ellison, Damon Knight was a lovely man and great to everybody and um, terrific short story writer, mm-hmm. and he's the, the one behind To Serve Man, which became oh. a Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> and yes. became a Twilight Zone episode and became uh, Simpsons parodies and has been run so many times. You, there are so many versions of To Serve Man, but mm-hmm. he is responsible for that meme and that yeah. story. Great short story writer, but then he also tried to advance, um, you know, get cutting edge like what uh, in the 70s and into the 80s about what science fiction was by editing tons of anthologies of really sometimes very difficult to read stuff as well. And just to bug Jason, I went to, to high school with, I, I, I went to high school with his of son, course of course, mm. because I know everybody or somebody knows everybody because uh, mm-hmm. uh, David Knight, Kate Wilhelmy, his wife and Werner Vinge all uh, lived in Eugene, Oregon at one point. All right. oh, and oh, I love Werner Vinge. We're going to have to do a podcast. The, we, we, we will. That's one of my favorite books is the, um, is the Marooned in Real Time across Peace War, that little, the Bobble oh. book. Yes, oh. I love yes. that. I love that stuff. Um, oh, the wolf creatures at the end. And Ugh. I'll and I'll toss out um, one last one, which is New Legends, which is uh, Greg Bear actually was the co-editor of, and and most notably because it's got a story by Greg Bear called Wang's Carpets in it, which is one of the most mind blowing stories I have ever read. And the scary thing about it, it's basically like a world where there's this mat of like algae that flows on the surface of the of a of a an ocean, and it turns out that. Um, encoded in the fluctuations of the vibrations of the algae is an entire world that's like holographic. And, and it's funny because this is actually physicists think this might actually be the way our universe works is that we're all kind of wiggling things on a hologram two dimensional thingy. I I I are not a physicist, but mm-hmm. I did not descend from algae. Yeah, but it's far. It's no, no. You're encoded. You're encoded in a holographic, virtual reality 
uh, encoded oh, well, by okay, the then. algae. So <laughs> it's okay, it's ju- it's just one of those stories where you're like, whoa, where is this? And and New Legends is all about that. It's like crazy, sort of based on the cutting edge of of science, and you know, ten years ago now, but. Anyway, so there's a lot to read that we have a lot here and there's a lot more to read. And and I hope if we've done nothing else, we've we've encouraged everybody out there to to read some short stories, whether they are stories by Ted Chang or others. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See what I did there? I see. I say read a a novel. Damn it. And or don't and listen Mm -hmm. to Scott. That that's your (laughs) other way that you could go that way. Um, I'm sure our next book club edition will will be based on a novel, although we don't actually have anything to announce about what it will be. So check the Twitter. Go follow The Incomparable on Twitter, and we'll Mm -hmm. tell you there. All right. So thank you. This was great, and I uh, really appreciate all the contributions. I, I, uh, you know, short stories Mm -hmm. are not – they don't get a lot of love, but I felt a lot of love on -hmm. this podcast, which is is good. So I'd like to thank my guests. Scott McNulty, thank you for uh, staying up with us. I'll keep it brief. <laughs> but I thought you liked novels. <laughs> I do. Uh, many levels of That's comedy. Was... Many levels. Uh, Glenn Fleischman, thank you for um, bringing us down with your, you know, terrible uh, Fairly Brothers and and Saturday Night Live <laughs> references. You lowbrow guy, you gotta mix it up. Can't always be the Ivy League oh, guy. And and Lisa Schmeiser, thank you for. Uh, actually lending some class and dignity to the proceedings for once. I like how it's for once, as opposed to the rest of the times on the resident Bulgarian. <laughs> no, no, no. It's because these other two knuckleheads and me are usually the book club, and you actually classed up the joint a little bit. Oh, so thank you. Really- well, I, I hope I can join you guys again soon for a different time. So until next time, um, this is Jason Snell, your host for The Incomparable. Thanks for listening. I hope you read some of the things we talked about today. We'll see you next time. Although if your if your um if your car is crushed by Thor's hammer, it's not covered because that's an act of God. <laughs>